1: I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in.
2: It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Wall Street trying to reverse course after its worst week since January. Stock futures right now pointing higher. Not so for the Chinese tech stocks out there. The sector is taking a tumble once again on delisting fears despite an upbeat outlook from one exchange official at the center of those negotiations. Sticking with that China story, the government putting a key, key port city into lockdown amid a new COVID-19 outbreak, one that could send shockwaves through the entire global economy. In Ukraine, the fighting continues as attacks on civilian targets ramp up and the Russian offensive sets its sights on a new key target in the south. Plus, in the face of growing tensions, the U.S. and China set to hold face-to-face talks in Rome today, focused on security and the crisis in Ukraine. It's Monday, March 14, 2022. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan today. We start this morning off with U.S. futures hoping to turn the tide After last week's big slide, right now you can see the Dow futures are pointing to a 250-point gain at the opening bell. The S&P would be implied higher by roughly 26 points, and the Nasdaq higher by roughly 42. So a solid start to the day implied. This after, the Dow saw its its fifth down week in a row. The Nasdaq and S&P both coming off their worst weeks since January. Checking the bond trade ahead of this big week's Fed policy meeting you can see right there, 10-year Treasury note yields 2.06%, so steadily creeping higher. The two-year Treasury note yield 1.79%, the last trade there. Now, you can see crude futures continue to tick lower from those historic highs earlier this morning. World, uh, world benchmark ice crude futures, $109.50, about 3% downside there. U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, $105.39, down about 3.5% as well. Let's get a check now on the trading overseas. Juliana Tattlebaum is in our London newsroom with the latest there. Good morning, Juliana.
3: Dom, good morning. Well, European equities have started out the week on a strong footing. We've got green across the board extending the gains we saw come together last week. It was a volatile week of trade here in Europe, but ultimately the stock 600 broke a three week losing streak to end higher. And this morning we are seeing investors continue to put money back into the market. So we've got the German index out in front up 2.2 percent. VW Volkswagen shares outperforming this morning after delivering some strong results. We've also seen strong performance in Deutsche shares. Shares this morning after the bank came out and said they're reversing course on their Russian strategy and they're actually going to be winding down their Russian business, contrary to what they had suggested at the end of last week. So broad-based gains for European markets. From a sector perspective, here's the picture. I mentioned those two outperformers, VW and Deutsche Bank, and those are the two sectors that are outperforming autos up about 3.6 percent, banks up about 2.5 percent. But to put this into perspective, the banks were hardest hit by uh, this uh, Russia's invasion into Ukraine, the prospect for a slower path to normalization of monetary policy in Europe, a weight on the banking sector. So we are outperforming this morning, but that is off of a, a pretty low base. Retail insurance round out the top performers on the downside. We've got basic resources down about 2.2 percent. The clear underperformer, but a little bit of red on the board for oil and gas, household goods, health care and technology. Dom, back over to you.
2: All right, thank you very much, Juliana Tettelbaum, live in London. To the war in Ukraine now. Now it's on its 19th day, a new round of peace talks between Russia and Ukraine currently underway via video conference. This latest round of negotiations coming a day after Moscow escalated its offensive in the western part of the country, shelling an area less than 20 miles from the Polish border, including a key military base, which killed 35 people. NBC's Bree Jackson joins us now from Washington, D.C. It's creeping closer, a closer creep to the Polish border, and that means NATO. Right, Bree?
4: You're absolutely right, Dominic, and that's raising major concerns. Uh, that Russian military strike, or at least missile strike that happened over the weekend, was roughly 20 miles from NATO ally Poland. Ukrainian officials say nearly 30 missiles were fired at Ukraine's most famous military base, killing at least 35, wounding more than 100, and shattering a sense of safety in the city of Lviv, which sits just west.
5: There is no safe place in Ukraine right now because you're in war with a country who has missiles who can fly to any capital in the uh, European Union.
4: U.S. officials believe the attack was an attempt to cut off supplies for Ukraine.
5: It's no surprise that the Russians are trying to expand the number of targets in this war because they're frustrated.
4: There are fears Russia's military actions could cross into NATO turf, an area the U.S. vows to defend. The administration also threatening severe sanctions should Russia deploy chemical weapons. Officials say it's a concern, but decline to publicly discuss the intelligence that suggests it could happen. We haven't
6: seen anything that indi- indicates some sort of imminent chemo- chemical biological attack right now, but we're watching this very, very closely.
4: There's also a warning to China and other countries who may attempt to aid Russia's war efforts.
5: If uh, they think that they can basically bail Russia out, they can give Russia a workaround to the sanctions that we've imposed, Uh, they should have another thing coming.
4: (sighs) More assistance is coming to Ukraine. The White House is rushing to get an additional $200 million in U.S. military equipment to the front lines. And today, national security and State Department officials will travel to Rome to meet with their Chinese counterparts. Among other things, they'll discuss Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Dom.
2: All right, Bree. thank you very much for that with the update on the Ukraine. Back to the markets now as investors turn their attention to the Federal Reserve. The central bank expected to roll out its first of several rate hikes since 2018 at its latest policy meeting later on this week. Anika Trion is the managing director of equities over at Kempen. Uh, Anika, thank you very much for joining us this morning. I-, I wonder, as you look towards what's happening with the Fed, is there anything that the Fed can do or say on Wednesday that will surprise the markets, given what we've already heard. Forget about telegraphing. We've heard straight up from J. P- J. Powell, it's going to be 25 basis points.
7: Yeah, it's it's a it's a really point on question because you're right. Powell has already managed expectations. He cited the 25 basis points. He did mention, you know, let's keep the door open to ex- discovering what needs to be done, given this you know, very, very rapid changing environment around the war. But I think the point that we need to remember is this. We have spent the last 18 to 24 months obsessing about this moment. We were talking about talking about raising rates. Then it was it went to talking about raising rates. And now we're actually in the world of raising rates. So I think, you know, what, what people will be looking for very, very closely from Powell is not only about the first rate hike, not only about the series to follow the market expects about, Six, 25 basis points increases, but also signals around the balance sheet. That's what's key.
2: So can the U.S. economy and maybe by extension the world economy uh, at least work through this notion that the Fed is going to be tapping the brakes on the economy and inflation? Can we expect market volatility because of this or is the market largely already priced in what's going to happen with the Fed?
7: Yeah. I mean, you know, the the point about the rising rates, that's something which the market perfectly understands, because as mentioned, we've had about 18 months of understanding of this. The other thing the market has learned is that, you know, relying on the Fed puts, i.e. the Fed will always rescue markets, is no longer relevant. And the point is that it's all about inflation. And I think what, what came out of the last inflation reading is it's about the broadening of price pressure besides energy. I mean, just consider the fact that, the price of food for Americans that is being purchased at home is almost increasing at a nine percentage point increase. So I think it's, it's all about the crux of it is to what extent can Powell pull off probably the most, you know, impressive central bank uh, action in, in decades of managing inflation without triggering the U.S. economy to go into a growth slowdown slash recessionary environment. And it all rests upon the strength of the labor market, which is amazing. It rests upon the level of pent-up savings of consumers and consumer confidence picking up after hitting actually 10-year lows recently given the war.
2: Annika, I mean, the markets have already, at least here in the U.S., seen market pullbacks over the course of the last several weeks, even before the Russia invasion of Ukraine. Is it fair to say now, though, that that perhaps there is a buying opportunity or do we think that there is more volatility ahead just because we don't know what's going to happen in Russia and Ukraine? And we don't really know what's going to happen with China, given this newest round of covid lockdowns in Shenzhen.
7: Well, that's it so you know there's always about the equity risk premium and the point is that prior to the war as you say the equity risk premium rose up sharply because of this concept that we can no longer rely on the fed puts and powell prior to the war had been very outspoken about keeping the window of options totally open from a monetary policy perspective and that's key for markets because over the last 10 years the markets have been dominated by monetary policy action that's what set asset prices going up. So, the good thing is that that equity risk premium has come in. The good thing is that that awareness built up has, has, you know, has been coming in. In terms of where equity markets go from here, you know, there's two words that an equity investor must remember, must be plastered into their brains, and that is pricing power. We've gone from an environment where we had inflation; it was cited transitory. Central bank has conceded and said this is not transitory. We're now back in this. Inf- We're now in an inflation discovery environment. We simply don't know what we don't know. We are seeing a broadening of pricing pressure, even beyond the war. Think about the supply chain disruptions. You know the blockages of the Suez canals, etc. cetera, 2021, sure. we haven't even worked through that yet. Let alone you know the massive disruptions. That comes that come out of this. So the two words you need to remember are pricing power. Which companies truly, truly have the ability there.
2: All right, pricing power is a key for sure there. Anna Katrion, thank you very much for joining us this morning. We appreciate it. When we come back on the show, Chinese tech taking a tumble once again as delisting fears continue to weigh, plus more on China as authorities lock down a major economic hub over a COVID-19 outbreak. As we just mentioned there, a live report ahead there. And later on, Elon Musk giving Bitcoin bulls a reason to celebrate this morning. Very busy hours still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this break.
8: What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich Is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash find your rich. Edward Jones, member SIPC.
9: Imagine you're on a John Deere mower with a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeerecom slash get in the seat or visit a dealer
2: near you. Welcome back. Let's get to some of this morning's top stories. Bertha Coombs is here with those. Good morning, Bertha.
6: Hey, good morning, Dom. Uh, Dual-listed Chinese tech stocks taking a hit once again in overnight trade on continuing delisting fears. Hong Kong-listed names like Alibaba, JD.com, Tencent, Yum China, Baidu, and more, falling more than 13% in Asian trade. This despite comments from one of China's largest investment banks that the U.S. and China are believed to be having, quote, earnest discussions about resolving the current market regulatory issues, the Hang Sen tech index ending the day down nearly 5 percent. Bitcoin and other cryptos could get a boost today after Elon Musk says he's not looking to sell his holdings in Bitcoin, Ethereum or Dogecoin. In a tweet thread, Musk admitted Tesla and SpaceX are both seeing, quote, significant inflation pressures when it comes to raw materials and logistics, adding, quote, it is generally better to own physical things like a home or stock and companies you think make good products than dollars when inflation is high. And Uber is adding a surcharge on fares and deliveries in the U.S. and Canada. The company says the charge is in response to surging gas prices. Uber riders will never Now pay a fee of 45 to 55 cents per trip and Uber Eats deliveries will include a 35 to 45 cent surcharge. Those fees, which are temporary and go directly to drivers, will last for at least two months. Dom. But if we keep seeing these gas prices increase, we're gonna start seeing more of these fuel charges.
2: I'm a driver. I know, I, a I, know, I know it very well. Bertha Coombs, thank you very much for that update. The S&P 500 is down roughly 12 percent this year, coming off a 2 percent decline just last week. That's largely on continued jitters about the economic fallout from the war in Ukraine and with the Fed expected to hike rates this week for the first time since 2018. But your next guest says history is setting the S&P up for a short-term bounce. Frank Capillari is the chief market technician over at Instanet. Frank, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Let's talk a little bit about what exactly it means when we look at the S&P 500 and see the pullback that we've seen just over the course of the last couple of months. Are we finding any kind of support here anytime soon?
9: Thanks a lot for having me. Well, S&P 500 is in a downtrend until proven otherwise. But I think there is a reason to believe we could have another rally attempt like you just mentioned. Uh, Number one, right back in that pocket, a 4100, 4200 area where we saw rallies happen over the last uh, few months, right? In Late January to late February, we had rallies of 11% and 8%. Uh, secondly, we're coming off that 2% down week, which is relatively rare. If you go back to 2018, it's happened 30 times now. 21 of the last 29 times it was up the next week, with an average move of 1.7%. And third, March seasonality sometimes supports a mid-month to late-month rally attempt as well. So you all, put that all together, and it sets up an opportunity to have a rally again. Now, the issue has been that each of these rallies have been faded. So until we make some break that downtrend, we have to really treat a lot of these with a grain of salt.
2: All right, so Frank, that's what we're kind of showing right here, this, this level, right? This kind of 4,000 to 41.50 range. We're right in this area of support, so you think it actually could hold?
9: I do, and you can see that below that, if it doesn't hold, there's a big air pocket down below. And so we didn't have the chart there, but there's a big what's called a you know, head and shoulders topping pattern out there. that has been a risk now for the past few weeks that that has held. So has to hold again or else that we can see downside momentum pick up even more.
2: All right, Frank, now with the focus this week, not just on stocks, but on rates for sure, given the Fed meeting and what's expected to be a 25 basis point hike to, to short term Fed funds rates. Can we talk a little bit about what the rates outlook is for the 10-year, especially? It seems to be one that a lot of folks are focusing on right now.
9: That's right. In terms of, of patterns, right, A classic breakout was when we saw the 1.7 area over a 10-year yield break through that uh, earlier this year and quite quickly got to 2%. And I think that's when expectations for all these continued rate hikes really ramped up. And over you know the last few weeks, it's come in, it's held 1.7 again and back up. So it, it shows that even though we're probably going to get higher rates over the long term, it's probably going to be a little slower than they were originally anticipated. And I think the Fed is looking at this, right? You want to take this relatively slowly. I think it's presumptuous to, to really say we're going to have so many hikes without even understanding how the market is going to digest even the first one, right, from an equity perspective and from an economy perspective.
2: All right so we 're kind of showing things uh, again that bottoming up that we saw kind of around that one point two one of the quarter percent range for the ten year, and then again kind of a little bit higher at that one point three five one point four percent range, and then kind of where we are sitting right now, just about two point zero eight. You actually do feel as though there's that, that little bit of uncertainty, but what is is there a good target that we could see happen in, in, in say the coming months, given what, what what we know right now
9: Sure well, in terms of the ten year yield, we just take a measured move from that very large buying information and gets you to about 225. So you definitely see you working higher from there.
2: All right. So 225, the last trade that we could see there in terms of the overall target. And then lastly, we want to take a look at what's happening with the clear outperformer, arguably since the pandemic lows. And that's been the energy trade versus the rest of the stock market overall. Do we think that energy is still a compelling story? Do we think it's still worth buying right now?
9: I do. And one of the reasons is that you know, this trade has been in with us for quite some time. One way to look at this, if you look at the October 20 lows, and you compare the XLE Energy ETF to the XLK Technology ETF. And over that time frame, again, not even including this year so far, XLE was up 90% versus Technology, 50%. So you're talking about a near double even before that performance gap widened this year. And in terms of the technicals, you can look at the XLE, crude oil, any one of the other ETFs, and they're in a you know, very distinct uptrend. And even with the parabolic moves we saw the last few weeks and then back down, all that did was bring, say, the XLE back down to that upper sloping channel. So that seems to be a very strong trend. We have to respect it. And it's been in place for a year and a half. And I think until that breaks, we have to respect it and also believe that inflation will be with us for a while.
2: All right, Frank, I'm just showing it right now. We we talked about the performance gaps right now, kind of between technology and energy. You can see they've widened out at certain points, narrowed a little bit over the course of the middle part of last year, and then heading into this year as well, kind of narrowing a bit. So you think that could actually widen out a little bit more?
9: Definitely could. And at the very least, you know, we want to look at stocks and, and areas that are in uptrends. Excellent energy definitely is one of them.
2: All right. Frank Capillary, thank you very much for joining us with the Thoughts on the Markets. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thanks, Don. Still on deck for the show, breaking down Wall Street's tech wreck. And if there's any sector investors should be looking to buy
10: right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.
2: Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good morning, Francis.
11: Hi, Dom. Good morning. We start with police who are searching for a man who violently attacked two employees Saturday working at the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Sixty-year-old Gary Cabana wasn't allowed past the museum entrance. That's when police say Cabana jumped over the reception desk and stabbed two employees multiple times. They are expected to recover. Officials said Cabana, who is still at large, was denied entrance because his membership had been revoked a day earlier for repeat disturbances. We are remembering Oscar award-winning actor William Hurt. He was one of Hollywood's most versatile leading men. Hurt's decades-long career included iconic 80s films like Body Heat and Broadcast News. Younger generations knew him as Thaddeus Ross in The Incredible Hulk. He died yesterday of natural causes. William Hurt was 81 years old. And after less than six weeks of retirement, Tom Brady says he's not done. He's headed back to football. The 44-year-old announced on social media that he is returning to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, adding that he is, quote unfinished business this season would be Brady's 23rd in the NFL dumb I don't know if your household once you got news of this like Old. late last night came out of the blue nowhere it's <laughs> like what is this all about I don't know a lot of people have some mixed feelings about this was one.
2: it really out of the blue though or, 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 or did some people
11: really feel as though he was due to
2: come back at some point
11: yeah but some people say you know he went out and there was so much controversy back and forth when he did retire that one last time that now it's like after all that I don't know. We'll, we'll see. You know, he, he is the goat. So he's he is got already do. But,
5: but, uh,
2: unfinished business for sure there. Francis Rivera, thank you very much for that. We appreciate it. Still ahead on the show, a live report from Ukraine as Russia steps up its, its attacks in the western part of that country with virtual peace talks underway at this hour ongoing. We'll be right back after this. The Fed in focus, investors gearing up for the central bank's first rate hike in roughly four years. Former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson is here to lay out the rate roadmap ahead. Russia continuing its bombardment of Ukraine as Moscow brings the conflict closer to NATO's borders. Following a deadly strike on a military base near Poland, we are live on the ground as two sides hold a new round of peace talks. And a developing story in China, the city of Shenzhen under lockdown as officials race to contain the spread of, yes, a COVID outbreak in the key technology and manufacturing hub. It is Monday, March 14th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to the show. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. And here's how your money and investments are looking as we are halfway through the 5 a.m. Eastern time hour. Right now, futures are pointing to solid gains at the opening bell. You can see the Dow is implied higher by roughly 255 points. The S&P implied higher by roughly 26 and the Nasdaq higher by just about 36 points. A little bit of a modest move for the Nasdaq right now. But this is all coming after the Dow saw its fifth down week in a row. The Nasdaq and the S&P both coming off their worst weeks since January. Checking bonds as well at this hour ahead of this big Fed policy meeting later on this week. The 10-year note yield, 2.08%. The two-year note yield, 1.8% right now. The two-year, by the way, at its highest level since September of 2019. The 10-year, you got to go back to July of 2019 as well. Also taking a look at Chinese technology stocks, taking a beating. Names like JD.com, Metwan, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, you name them, They're all facing steep losses on renewed concerns over regulatory headwinds and retaliatory risks over China's close relationship with Russia. You can see there are many losses there in the double-digit percentages for the biggest names in Chinese tech and Internet. Now to the war in Ukraine. Russia is moving the conflict closer to NATO's border after carrying out an airstrike on a military base in western Ukraine 20 miles from the Polish border. At least 35 were killed. More than 130 people were hurt. Meanwhile, Russian and Ukrainian officials are holding a new round of talks today via video conference. And Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is calling on Microsoft, Oracle and SAP to take further actions against Russia. Zelensky tagging all three companies in his tweet, making that request. The trio have all announced significant steps to roll back business operations within Russia. And Oracle saying it's already done everything possible. NBC News' Molly Hunter joins us now from Lviv, Ukraine, which is just about one hour west of those weekend attacks. Molly, what exactly can you tell us? How intense has the situation gotten?
8: Yeah, Dominic, it was a game changer this weekend. This was a major escalation. This is the most West that the Russians have attacked. With that said, no one here in Lviv is surprised that they attacked that military base. It is the most famous military base. It is a sprawling training facility uh, up, just like you said, about an hour from me, 20 miles from Lviv, 15 miles from the Polish border. NATO drills happen there. There have been U.S., U.K., European troops there. Training for the last several years. So it's not a surprise that that was attacked, but it changes the game for people here in Lviv. So, as you mentioned, 35 people were killed, 134 people were injured. This city has been the relative safe haven in the west of the country. Everyone fleeing from the east has come here. This is also the departure point for anyone then going on to Poland or elsewhere in Europe. So, we spoke with people yesterday about if their safety calculation, if their risk calculation had changed now that the attacks had gotten a little bit closer. And a lot of people said, Yes, this is now they might consider leaving. They might consider moving around. The other thing people told us, though, is that this proves that nowhere is safe in this country.
2: Right. Can you tell us now a little bit more about that southern part of the country, the besieged city of Mariupol and other key ports along the Black Sea? I, I just wonder whether or not there is a little bit more focus on that area right now near Lviv, but we're forgetting about all of the conflict that's happening on that southern area, even close to Crimea.
8: Absolutely. Look, this was the escalation in the West, the focus, uh, the violence, uh, the major fighting is all happening in the East. And along that Black Sea belt, as you mentioned, Mariupol being on one side of that, Odessa on another, which the Russians are absolutely trying to consolidate. Mariupol, that southeastern port city, we have been talking about uh, for the last 10 days. It is besieged. It has been surrounded. Uh, Residents there, 450,000 residents, according to the ICRC, are without water, without food, without electricity, without heat. Now, we have been tracking a humanitarian convoy that has been heading in there, uh, heading to that city for the last 48 hours. The roads are treacherous. Uh, They have been blocked already by Russian troops, at least at one stage. Our information this morning is that they are 50 miles out of that city, on board 100 tons of humanitarian... Cargo, uh, including you know medicines, water, life-saving uh, medical aid, essential foodstuffs for some of these people to hopefully uh, continue to survive, to be honest. And once those, that convoy gets to the city, the hope is that civilians will be able to get on those vehicles and get out on the same humanitarian corridor. As of now, though, no indication that they're absolutely going to reach that city. Tom.
2: All right, some dangerous situations there. Thank you very much for the update later on the latest from Ukraine to China and another developing story this morning as well. Officials placing the port city of Shenzhen under a lockdown for at least the next week. In an effort to stem a growing, yes, COVID-19 outbreak, it's still a thing there, with Apple supplier Foxconn and at least a dozen other companies halting production as a result. The city of 17.5 million people is known as China's Silicon Valley. It's a big manufacturing hub, a key linchpin in the global technology supply chain. Eunice Yoon joins us now from Beijing with the latest there. Eunice, this is a big deal Because this could have real, real economic impacts, not just on China, but it could provide a breaking, if you will, on the rest of the global economy as well at the worst possible time. Take us through the implications.
12: Absolutely, especially because of the supply chain impact. Those 17.5 million people that you mentioned in Shenzhen are now in partial lockdown, having to get tested at makeshift testing centers like the one behind me. The city of Shenzhen has ordered all non-essential businesses to suspend operations until march 20th public transportation has been cut travel restricted and the city's entire population again of 17 and a half million people are being tested for a third time. Now, Apple suppliers Foxconn and Unimicron both said that they have green-lighted backup plans to make sure that their production is not disrupted, or at least it's mitigated somewhat. Uh, Unimicron is also a supplier for Intel. Uh, China is fighting its biggest COVID outbreak since the pandemic at 9,000 cases so far this year. This is the most, more than all of 2021. Other cities are also now clamping down on outbreaks. Uh, Shanghai, for example, it has shut its schools. It's restricting travel. It's now rumored to divert international flights away from the city this week. And then the nine million residents who live in Changchun, where Toyota has a JV, can only leave home every other day in order to buy groceries. A Shanghai epidemiologist today, I told local reporters that the vast majority of the cases are stealth Omicron and that China could see an exponential rise in these cases. And this outbreak, Dom, as you could imagine, is really challenging the zero covid policy, which has been Beijing's policy to try to make sure that they get almost no cases here in order to do exactly what we were just talking about. At the start of this report to really um, ease the impact on the economy here.
2: All right, so, so, Eunice, can you tell us a little bit about, I mean, I, I want to bring up the zero COVID policy. It's been very high profile during this entire pandemic. Is there any reason, any indication that could change given what's happening with Shenzhen and, and given what's happening with the real economic impact? Could they ease it? Is there any possibility they could?
12: Well, we have seen a bit of a change just in the past couple of days, and that is that the Chinese government has approved for the first time the public use of rapid antigen tests. And then also separately, they gave the green light to Pfizer's COVID-19 pill treatment to be commercialized this year. This is the first time that a foreign a foreign made a COVID treatment of any type, including vaccines, has been approved in China. And I think it suggests that the government is looking for an off-ramp to the COVID policy, though, uh, the Shanghai epidemiologists also pointed out that uh, it's at this stage to open up China altogether would be very dangerous for the country because it could get overwhelmed, especially because its uh, medical resources are so, um, so much less than uh, compared to the, the population relative to the, popu- to, relative to the population.
2: All right, Eunice Yoon live in Beijing with the latest there. Thank you very much for that. Back on Wall Street now, futures are trying to stage a comeback rally. You can see the Dow is implied higher by roughly 275 points. But despite the pre-market bounce, we still have a very long way to go, especially in technology, with the Nasdaq more than 20% off its all-time highs and coming off its worst week since January. Just take a look at some of these formerly high-flying names, like meta platforms, formerly known as Facebook, off 51 percent from its highs that we've seen over the course of the time that we've kind of been tracking things. Netflix, by the way, is off 51 percent. DocuSign is down more than 76 percent off its record high. And same story for Zoom video communications as well. Joining me now to discuss all of this is Jared Weisfeld, Managing Director and U.S. Technology Sector Specialist over at Jeffries. Jared, good morning to you. Thank you very much for joining us this morning. Let's take us through whether or not this is a buying opportunity.
12: Good
1: morning, Dom. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. So, listen. I mean, I think uh, in the in the previous segment, you summed up exactly what's what's really what's really impacting the sector here. And you know, we can't underestimate the fallout from the ongoing geopolitical conflict. I think Meta is is a great example where even just a few days ago, they talked about contagion from the broader conflict spilling over into Eastern Europe. Uh, we saw the same thing from Booking.com in terms of just an impact on the business. So, you really have multiple factors impacting technology sector. Their, uh performance and sentiment including geopolitical conflicts but also you know keep in mind just the rising interest rate environment and technology is is certainly the most susceptible in that and we'll we'll get more color here in a few days from the fomc but but in general uh yes for sure uh you have multiple headwinds but there are buying opportunities emerging as scarcity as growth becomes more scarce i think you're going to see investors flock to names that are more secular uh, oriented uh, as opposed to cyclical so' we're I think, certainly think we're going to see a uh, bottom forming here, especially in the software sector.
2: All right. So, so, so you say the software sector. Are, are there specific areas, specific companies that you think are more compelling to you at these levels? You, you, you mentioned before this notion of people kind of flocking towards that growth trade in technology if things start to really show a slowdown. I remember just in months past we had talked about this idea that some traders and investors look towards Apple as almost a safe haven trade. Are, are there places that you think are more more attractive right now?
1: Yeah, for sure. So when you just take a step back and you look at a lot of the, if you look at the number one area of growth within, within software, it would certainly be anything levered to the public cloud. You look at the growth rates at Amazon and Google and Microsoft, that growth, those growth rates remain unabated. So you certainly want to look to names that can benefit from the infrastructure growth that's associated with the public cloud. Also layer on cybersecurity in terms of the global geopolitical, uh, outlook that's, that's currently unfolding and the global cyber attack. We've seen incredible results from the entire cybersecurity complex over the last couple of weeks, including the likes of Palo Alto and Checkpoint um, so, you know, and even uh, CrowdStrike last week. So I certainly think that you're going to see continued momentum in the, in the cybersecurity sector as well. All right. So cybersecurity,
2: certain parts of the software, the software industry, for sure. Uh, Jared, before we let you go, we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about the macro interest rate environment right now. Is it is it is it at all plausible? that that tech trade is already embedding in future rate hikes coming from the Fed, what's, at, what's expected at least right now?
1: Absolutely. So take a look at what's going on with the two ten spread, which is basically the spread between the two-year and the 10-year yields. That's now at 20 basis points, and that spread has successfully predicted every prior recession as that goes to zero or potentially inverts what I was talking about earlier in terms of growth becoming more scarce. So you've seen a lot of these names uh, come down 50 to 60%, and these uh, growth rates that we're talking about still remain incredibly robust. The one thing not to forget about is I do think there is a private equity uh, put, if you will, in terms of the floor on many of these names, we've seen, uh, we've seen Citrix get taken out by private equity. We've also seen the strategic put in terms of Microsoft for Activision. So there continues to remain a healthy number of potential acquirers for the entire sector, which should also act as a tailwind going forward. All right, buying the dip from the institutional side of things. Jared Weiss
2: called it Jeffries. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up on the show, Ukraine in focus still as the U.S. and China come together for high profile talks overseas with a warning for Beijing. And Warren Buffett boosting his bet on one U.S. energy company amid oil's recent rise. Details on your morning's other top stories when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on some of your morning's other top stories. Bertha Coombs is back with those. Hi, Bertha.
6: Hi there, Dom. Uh, Representatives from the U.S. and China are set to meet in Rome today for high-level talks focused on Ukraine. White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will meet with China's top foreign policy official for what is to be the highest level face-to-face meeting between the two countries since the Russian invasion began. Sullivan will stress the economic and trade consequences that Beijing will face if it helps Russia in its war. Back here at home, Warren Buffett shoring up his recent stake in Occidental Petroleum. Buffett adding about $1.5 billion to his Occidental stake after purchasing around $4.5 billion just last week. Occidental is now Berkshire's ninth largest reported holding at just over 118 million shares. And Ford is pushing back allocations to dealerships, citing ongoing production cuts. The automakers saying that 37 suppliers have failed to provide parts as scheduled, leading to 100,000 units of production being lost. Dom executives are telling dealerships that they will not receive new deliveries until the end of May, meaning many new car showrooms could remain empty during a normally busy period for sales. It is tough trying to find those cars on the market these days, Don. Absolutely. That market
2: is so disjointed right now, Bertha. Thank you very much for the update there. Back to the invasion of Ukraine and the Justice Department's efforts to target Russia's oligarchs. The agency now turning its attention to crypto exchanges and financial institutions that aid the sanctioned Russians Robert Frank joins us now with who may be under that DOJ microscope. Good morning, Robert.
5: Good morning, Dom. Good to see you. Well, the Justice Department warning crypto exchanges and payment platforms that they could become targets in this huge oligarch crackdown. The new Klepto Capture Task Force saying banks and crypto exchanges that failed to maintain, quote, adequate money laundering policies will be in the crosshairs of this investigation. Now, trading between the ruble and crypto assets doubled right after the early days of the invasion of Ukraine. The UK and US also going after the financial investments of the oligarchs. UK authorities were freezing the US hedge fund investments made by Roman Abramovich. He was just sanctioned in recent days by both the UK and Canada. Officials say he invested what could be, quote, billions of dollars through an unregistered investment firm based in Tarrytown, New York, called Concord Management. Now, the hedge fund's that Abramovich invested in couldn't in- include Mill Street Capital, Empyrean, Millennium and Sculptor Capital. Some funds like Braven Howard now saying they will return Concord's investment. Abramovich had been trying to unload his hedge fund investments in recent weeks. Sources telling me Abramovich also has large holdings of U.S. stocks. Unclear exactly what vehicles he may have used. Now, Concord did not respond to requests for a comment, Don, but interesting to see these oligarchs were very well diversified, not just yachts and real estate, but also a lot of hedge funds and probably a lot of U.S. stocks.
2: So, 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 Robert, as we talk about some of the, the, the way that these sanctions are, are working, and this uh, this notion that they could be using crypto around it, I mean, just how invested are some of these oligarchs in that crypto market? It doesn't seem as though that anybody of that that size and stature in terms of wealth would pose that much of their net worth in cryptocurrencies, at least
5: just not within the last few years. Well, we know even large U.S. billionaire investors have put, you know, for them a small percentage in crypto, which turns out to be a large dollar number. You would think that these oligarchs who have been masters at protecting their assets, at sheltering their assets through LLCs and crypto probably held relative to the world's wealthy, a large percentage in crypto, especially As these sort of at the invasion and as the sanctions ramped up, they were preparing for this. They were looking for ways even prior to the invasion of sheltering their assets. So I would guess at least some of the top guys had pretty large dollar holdings. All right.
2: A big deal for sure there with regard to the crypto trade. Robert Frank with the latest there. Thank you very much. Still on deck for the show. The Fed under the spotlight right now with its first rate hike in years on deck. Former central bank vice chair Roger Ferguson lays out how Ukraine and inflation will factor into that big decision. We'll be right back after this. Welcome back. Investors are turning their attention towards the Fed this week and its latest policy meeting. The central bank is expected to raise the benchmark interest rate a quarter of a percentage point, which would be its first rate hike since 2018. Joining us now is Roger Ferguson, former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve and now a CNBC contributor as well. Roger, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Let's talk about whether the Fed is doing the right thing by raising interest rates at this point, given the uncertainties we still have with Russia and Ukraine.
0: So I think the answer is yes, the Fed is doing the right thing by raising rates at this point. Recognize that inflation uh, is a clear and present danger. Uh, It's a problem for Wall Street. It's a problem for Main Street. Uh, And I think it's uh, an important element of the Fed's mission. Uh, In fact, they've got a dual mission, is to keep inflation uh, low and stable. So they've got to to move. Having said that, and you saw it in Chairman Powell's testimony, the word uncertainty features uh, prominently uh, in their thinking, I'm sure. And I think the way it will play out is perhaps the pace will be a little slower uh, and they'll be very focused on incoming data to guide them. But they absolutely have to move now to maintain credibility And to be consistent with their mission.
2: You know, what's interesting about that, uh, Roger, is that there is no uncertainty at all with regard to this rate decision coming up here pending any kind of really, really drastic macroeconomic condition changing. Fed chair Jay Powell told Congress it's basically 25 basis points. He's recommending it. It's probably going to happen. What exactly then does that do for the Fed's calculus going forward? Does the Fed have the runway to be more patient with these 25 basis point hikes? It wasn't that long ago the markets were pricing in a 50 point hike for its first one in March.
0: Well, first, I think when you're prepared to do liftoff after, if you say, so many years, I think it's really important to not surprise markets. So clarity of message and Chairman Powell delivered a very clear message, as you point out, is, I think, a plus. Secondly, um, they still do have an awful lot of credibility, uh, for sure. If one looks at the market expectations for inflation out a bit, not in near end, but out. It starts to uh, come down to that 2 percent number gradually over time. So they do have the, the uh, ability to be a bit more patient here because they still have a lot of credibility and inflation expectations, while some were high, are really not you know, sort of getting out of control over the, the intermediate to longer term. And finally, I think they want to be uh, a little more cautious, a little more patient, more prudent, waiting for this uncertainty to clarify uh, as much as possible. You know, the, the geopolitical situation both increases upside risk, about inflation being higher and lasting all they like, but also increases the downside risk that maybe the economy, which is in pretty good shape now, slows more than they want. And they risk the other part of their dual mandate, which is around maintaining maximum employment. So I think they're gonna be methodical and careful here uh, this is not a time to set it and forget it, I believe, in terms of monetary policy.
2: No, there's, there, there's no autopilot for sure. That They've got a very tough market to navigate, arguably the toughest that the Fed has seen in years and decades at this point. I wonder now if you the way that you see things, Roger, right now in the macroeconomic condition, there are some signs, maybe just initial at least, that the inflation picture may be easing. I point right now to crude oil prices, which have dropped another $5. Benchmark U.S. crude was $130 plus just within the last couple of weeks, and now it's back down to $104, $105. What exactly do you see in the economy that could point possibly to the, the inflation picture easing if that were to hypothetically happen?
0: Well, I think you make, uh, you start at the right place, right? much of this inflation is being driven by. Geopolitical uncertainty, some of it's being driven by supply chain challenges. Obviously, there are labor market issues. So go through them one by one. Geopolitical uncertainty, who knows what's going to happen there? But we fully understand that if this uh, that, uh, war gets resolved in some way that's market friendly, and you've seen it already, you know, oil prices will come down. Um, and in fact, futures markets in oil do actually expect the price to come down. Secondly, supply chain issues. Those have clearly been made worse uh, by the, the war uh, that Russia has started in Ukraine. Um, those will gradually over time fix themselves. Sure. Uh, and then finally, wages. We'll see how that plays out. So there is some opportunity for inflation to t- uh, temper this a little bit.
2: All right. Roger Ferguson, thank you very much for the wisdom. We appreciate it, sir. Have a good day. That's us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage coming up next.